Please stand for the reading of God's word. This morning's reading is from the book of Luke, chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and eat it, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Well, good morning. My, my name is Daniel. I'm one of the pastors here. Glad you're with us this morning. Isaiah 40 tells us that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. And so I'm going to pray for us and ask him to speak to us this morning. So if you would, pray with me. God, thank you that you speak to us, that you're with us. You've not left us to figure out life, to figure out uh, the Bible on our own or Christianity on our own. You've given us your spirit. So I pray that your spirit would speak into our spirits this morning. You would soften our hearts. You would illumine our minds that you would change us because we would encounter you, a God who is alive a God who wants to give life to us this morning. Lord, we pray, speak to us. May the words of my mouth, the meditations of my own heart, the one who preaches be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So we just finished last week a six-week series that we preached on the vision and values of our church. It was a, a series that we titled Renew for the Glory of God and the Good of Durham. And this morning we're starting a new series that will last through the remaining of the year. For the rest of our Sundays in 2016, we're going to be looking at parables, stories that Jesus told. Jesus loved to tell stories. 
He told stories as he walked along the roads of Galilee, as he sat, sat around dinner tables, and as we'll see this morning, as he journeyed through Samaria. A little over a year ago, I read a, a phenomenal book titled Creativity, Inc. Uh, it's the memoir of Ed Catmull, the co-founder of Pixar Studio. Highly recommend the book. But Pixar has produced some amazing movies. Toy Story, Finding Nemo, Wally, The Incredibles, Up. Recently, a movie that we've watched in the Mason house over and over, the movie Inside Out. One of the biggest points of Catmull's memoir and the driving force behind Pixar was and is their commitment to the power of story. Now, sure, Pixar has cutting-edge computer graphic technology, but since its inception, Catmull has held firm to, to the belief that slick animation means nothing without story. Stories are powerful. Stories surprise us, they shock us, they move us to tears, they can move us to anger, they call attention to our imaginations and move our emotions, they teach, mold, and instruct us. Now, parables are stories that Jesus told to draw our imaginations and emotions and wills into the truths of God, into the truths of the gospel, and into life. And so I'm excited that we get to spend the next few months and parables together. And we're starting, as Liz just read, with perhaps one of the most well-known parables, a parable that has been referred to as the parable of the prodigal son. I think this parable is about so much more than just this prodigal son. I want to propose that this is a parable about life. It's a story about truly and fully living. Now, I know that sounds grandiose, that this one parable addresses the age-old philosophical question, what is the meaning or the purpose of life? And I'm not saying that it answers every aspect of that question, but I think this parable gives us two different brothers with two very different approaches and pursuits of life on how to live. And both of these brothers are very much alive and present today in our culture, in our church, and in you. The thing that the brothers have in common is their father, who reveals to both of them a much better way of living and pursuing life. The younger brother's approach to life is, is this. This is my first point. That life is found and lived in the I world, the letter I. The I world. And the byproduct of the I world is self-assertion. Look at verse 12. It says, The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. The youngest son comes to his dad and says, Dad, I want all my inheritance, all that you've set aside, all that you have in store for me, everything that will become mine when you die, I want it now. Now, the Greek word for property or goods is ten usion, which means substance or being. So what the father gives away and what the son ultimately wastes away is not just some stuff that belonged to him, but his whole existence, his very being, his life. So the youngest son says, Dad, I want to treat you like you're dead. I want to go and pursue life the way I want, where I want, how I want. Amen. So he cuts the relationship with his father so that he can live freely, autonomously. This is our country's current cultural world and life view. We live in the I world. 
a world and life view that is governed by statements like this. My identity is found not by anything on the outside, but by what I determine on my inside. My character grows when I'm being true to myself, when I assert my own freedom. Statement like this, that the good of society is found as individuals are dignified, and individuals are dignified when everyone has the freedom to be who they want, act how they want. Therefore, society flourishes as long as no one oppresses individual freedom. This is the world and life view of our culture. It is the water that we're swimming in. It is the water that your children are swimming in and will swim in. And as Tim Keller pointed out at a conference Timothy and I attended this past week, it's a world and life view that is not just being taught on television anymore, where, where maybe we spend two hours a day being influenced by this world and life view. It is now coming to us in all regards on tweets. Hashtag be true to yourself. Hashtag Justin Timberlake, you've seen that one? Hashtag. Hashtag do whatever makes you happy. It comes to us on Instagram, on Facebook, on the internet, places where we spend close to 80% of our day. This world and life view is influencing us. The 1995 movie Babe, uh, Keller referenced this, is a great example of this I world, world and life view. If you've seen the movie, it's an older 1995 movie, Babe the Pig, is won by Mr. Hoggett at the county fair. And Babe doesn't want to be a pig. Babe wants to be a sheepdog and herd sheep. And everyone falls in love with Babe and how Babe is acting. And Babe is just free to be how he wants to be. He wants to be a sheepdog even though he's a pig. Freedom to and for self is what our culture says gives humanity dignity. And to have a God that restricts the self actually decreases dignity. Therefore, let's treat God as though he is dead. Maybe not saying God is dead, but we live like God is dead. We cut him off and we live the way we want. So the younger son takes his inheritance, his being, his life. In verse 13, he lived like hell, apart from God. He lived recklessly, spent everything he had from the elder brother's remarks, we know that the younger brother was sexually free. He was morally free. The main point being he spent his life on whatever he determined. His choices alone dictated his living. And then a famine arises and the son has no more money. He'd spent it all. So he goes to a pig farmer. He gets hired to feed the pigs. In verse 16, it says he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. He's hungry. Life now was empty, and he was alone. Verses 17 to 19 says, when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I will perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Now, if you've heard this parable preached before, and I, and I would bet many of you have, maybe you've heard the preacher say, this is the moment, right here, this is the moment where the younger son gets it, begins to repent, to see the error of his ways, to change his mind. He hits rock bottom and he turns back to his father. But to be like Lee Corso on college game day, not so fast. <laughs> not so fast. 
this younger son is still living on his own terms. And you can see this in his rehearsal of his apology speech. He's rehearsing his apology speech to his father. I don't know if you've ever realized you were in the wrong and you needed forgiveness and you prepared an apology speech and and you kind of practiced it and rehearsed it. I remember hitting the golf ball in my backyard when I was 12 years old. I was chipping around in in our backyard and I was picking out targets as holes. The, The tree would be hole number one, the post and the fence, hole number two. And I was having a good time and my parents had told me not to chip the ball from the top of the hill in our backyard down towards the house. But I had to finish the golf course by finishing on number 18, which was the air conditioning unit. Next to the house, I was up on top of the hill. I got ready to hit it, and I flushed it. Just flushed it right over the air conditioning unit, right through the window of my parents' bedroom. And I panicked. I panicked. I got afraid of the punishment. And I started formulating why I was sorry, why I wouldn't do it again, why I would pay for it. I had my speech ready for when my parents got home. In the younger son's rehearsed speech, we still see him fearful of his father. We see him wanting to pay his father back. He says, make me one of your hired servants. Just take me back. Listen, real confession and real repentance is not a negotiation in order to secure forgiveness. It's not saying, God, I promise I will not sin like this again. Will you forgive me? God, I will be a good person from now on. Will you forgive me? Any confession that says, God, I will if you will, is a negotiation. And that is not true and real confession. God is not an angry father with his arms crossed, waiting for us to see the error of our ways. He's not waiting for us to grovel back to him, to give him our rehearsed speeches of why we were wrong, why we'll never do it again, why we will pay him back. There is no life found in approaching God this way. I promise you I have tried it, and I could still try living this way. The father in this parable graciously allows the younger son to leave and to go and live like hell. He doesn't control him. The father doesn't even go running after him as soon as he leaves. You see, sometimes the most gracious thing God does is allow us to take our lives in our own hands so that we will ultimately realize it's not satisfying. He allows his son to go. And with long suffering, the father waits expectantly, gazing over the horizon, waiting for his son to return. And in verse 20, the father sees the son. And the son was still a long way off, but the father has compassion. And he runs and he embraces his son and he kisses him. The father was looking and longing and waiting for his son to return. And he sees him and he feels compassion. And he runs, which was against the ancient Near Eastern culture for fathers whose sons had left to do this. But the father didn't care. The son was rehearsing his speech, and the father interrupts him, runs to him, embraces him, picks him up. Imagine him just spinning his son in circles. And then he kisses him. And the Greek for kiss here is not just a peck on the cheek. It means to repeatedly kiss. He kisses him over and over on the lips and on the forehead, on the nose, on the cheek, on the lips again. He is kissing him over and over. And this is the moment of grace. 
This is the moment where life was finally found for the younger son. You can see that the father's love and grace changes him. Look in verse 21. He says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, period. He doesn't say treat me as a hired servant. Father, let me pay you back. Because his father's love has ushered him into the family. He now understands there's no paying back. There's no working for love and grace. The father freely gives it and treats him as a child. I heard a true story of a son named Tim who one day decided to leave his family and go live in a commune in Chicago. And it broke his family's heart. In particular, it broke his father Joe's heart. So he left and he moved to Chicago. And one day, Joe, the father, got a call from the police. The call said, sir, is your son named Tim Bailey? He said, yes. And he said, well, was, he was just arrested and charged with a DUI. And so Joe immediately leaves, middle of the night, driving to the town where he thought Tim would be in jail. But Tim wasn't there. He goes to the next town. Tim wasn't there. He goes to the next town, still no Tim. And so Joe drives to downtown Chicago to the house where he thought Tim was living in the commune. And as he opened the door, there were bodies everywhere laying on the ground. And he looks to the other side of the room and he sees his son Tim laying on the ground. And Joe walks quietly and gingerly to Tim's side. He looks down at him for a moment and moved with compassion, he bends down, he gives him a kiss. And then he turns around and he goes back home. And weeks later, Tim shows up at home. He returns. And Joe and the family were greatly surprised, extremely happy. And and months later, Tim commits his life to Christ, becomes a Christian. And then years later, Tim and Joe are on a walk, father and son walking. And Joe finally asks, Tim, what brought you home so many years ago? And Tim looked surprised and he said, Dad, you don't know? Do you remember that night years ago when you received a call saying I was in jail? That was a prank from one of my friends who gave you a call. And when you came to our house, I wasn't asleep. I pretended to be asleep, and I wanted to see how you would treat me. I wondered what you would do. And all you did was bend down and kiss me gently. Dad, the kiss brought me home. The kiss in Luke 15 is the moment of grace. It's the moment that the younger son's life is changed, where his world and life view is changed. In that moment, he was no longer lost, but found. And so the father yells to the servants in verse 22, bring the best robe. Put a ring on his hands, shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's eat and celebrate, for my son was lost, but now is found. The best robe, which represents righteousness, The ring, the signet ring, the family ring, which represents family identity. And the shoes, which is the ability to walk now in this newfound reality. And the killing of the fattened calf makes the party and the feasting available. Life is actually found in death. It's in giving up trying to do life on our own terms, in our own way. It is not found in rehearsed speeches to God or views of God that we must pay Him back. Life is found when we realize we're lost. That we're dead unto ourselves and then God the Father in the place of death and lostness runs after us, embraces us, kisses us over and over and over. And He killed not a fattened calf but His only Son. 
And by faith in Christ, we are given righteousness, the robe. We're secured as sons and daughters, the ring. And we're now able to live and walk into this newfound reality. We're given the shoes. Let me tell all of you who are here this morning that there is no pit, no pigsty, no pit that you can ever find yourself in where God's love and grace is not deeper still. You need not do anything but realize your lostness and your deadness to be able to sing, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. And in Christ, the fattened calf has been slaughtered and the love of the Father abounds and the celebration begins. But that's not the end of the story. I actually think it's just the primer. Because Jesus is really coming after those who would be hearing this story told. And that's the Pharisees, the religious. And the Pharisees would be ticked off at this story of extravagant grace and love. So there's another brother, the elder brother, who is trying to live life, find life in a particular way. And here's my second point. Life that's lived in the moral world. The moral world and the byproduct is self-righteousness. Look at verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music. The Greek there is symphonia. He heard the symphony of music and dancing And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. And verse 28, But he was angry and he refused to go in. There's a celebration. There's an amazing party. There's music and dancing and feasting. And here comes the elder brother, Mr. Respectability, Mr. Department of Ethics, Faculty of Religion. And he's not happy. You can almost hear him saying, why this partying? There are things around here that that need to be done, work that must be carried out. Someone around here has to be responsible. He's angry, and he won't go into the party. So the father entreats him to come in. And the elder brother with arms crossed, heart hardened, judgment rendered, says to his father in verse 29, look at these many years I have served you. Literally, that means I've slaved for you. I've never disobeyed. You never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who devoured property with prostitutes, you kill the fattened calf. The elder's brother's, the elder brother's way of living is by being moral. He never left. He was loyal. He slaved for his father. He worked for his father. He obeyed his father. Elder brother is serving up a heaping spoonful of self-serving tripe. (laughs) He is declaring, I've always been a good boy. I'm a good boy. And now this younger son who squandered everything away, you're throwing a party for him. If the younger son shows us the way of self-assertion, the elder son shows us the way of self-righteousness. Trusting in one's goodness and behavior for righteousness and life. I was a pre-med student during college, and I always thought I would be a doctor since high school to my junior year of college. Uh, and I was required to take many science classes like many of you have and are in, and, and with those classes I had to take labs. And I did not like microbiology lab at all, but I spent many hours looking through microscopes into Petri dishes. Petri dish is just a small glass circle where where you would mix and make observations about the growth of cells and bacteria 
that would form and grow in the Petri dish. The Petri dish provides the perfect environment to grow bacteria. Self-righteousness is a bacteria that grows and spreads and is not always easily visible by the normal eye. And the Petri dish that's mostly used to cultivate this bacteria and its spread is the church. Is religious community. Self-righteousness by its very definition is someone who's looking to be righteous. And religion is the place where people look to be righteous. Therefore, religious communities provide environments for self-righteousness. Listen, this is why non-Christian communities are oftentimes so much more warm and welcoming and, dare I say, fun than the church of Jesus Christ. Non-Christian communities do not cultivate self-righteousness. It's cultivated often in the church. See, the younger son knows he's lost. The elder son is lost but doesn't know it because his goodness is masking his own battle with God. The elder son is not lost despite his goodness, but because of his goodness. John Gerstner said, What most often separates us from God is our damnable good works. Self-righteousness makes its way into the church, into our church, and it, the church cultivates it. It's in Christ central. It's in my heart. I know it can be in your heart. So let's look at this Petri dish of our church under the microscope of the passage to see self-righteousness. And I think we'll see at least three things. The first is that goodness is the main weapon in battle against God. Notice how the elder brother uses his obedience against his father. It's a natural heart problem that, that goodness, however you might define goodness, is used by your heart to take control of God and others, to feel superior, and to say things like, you owe me. Or I have rights because look how good I am. The second thing that we see is there's, there's an anger about life and a comparison against others. The elder brother says, others have a better life than me. Like my, my younger son, has, the younger brother has a better life than me. They don't deserve it as much as I do. He is angry and he's comparing. A friend of mine, Les Newsom, said the misery that many of you feel from your life is issuing from how you interpret your life, not from the circumstances of your life. So you compare yourself to others, and you're angry. Third thing we see is a lack of joy and judgment toward others. The elder brother cannot enter the party. There's no dance, there's no listening to the music, no feasting, no joy. And his judgment is quick of the younger brother. He calls his own brother to his father, this son of yours. The son of yours, he is cocksure about where others stand, and he is self-righteous about where he stands. And this way of living leads to misery. Yet many churches cultivate this way of living, applaud this way of living. The father engages the older son in verse 31 and says, Son, you're always with me. All that is mine is yours. The party and the celebration has been offered always. And yet the elder son misses the father's heart. Instead of experiencing the embrace and the kiss and the robe and the ring and the shoes, 
and, to, and living like a son, he slaves like an employee for his father. Grace has always been there for the eldest son, but his goodness and his anger and his judgment and his lack of joy, his self-righteousness leads him to think that he's not lost. Brothers and sisters, we need to let God judge the hell of self-righteousness out of us and the heaven of grace into us. This parable is part of three different stories, three different parables in Luke chapter 15. The first that we, we see in Luke 15 verse 1 is the parable of the lost sheep. A hundred sheep, one is lost but then is found and there's a celebration in heaven. And then the second is the parable of the lost coin. Ten silver coins, one is lost and found, there's joy in heaven. And then now there's the parable of the prodigal son, two sons. The youngest is lost and is found and there's a celebration for all to experience. Do you see the pattern? Lost, found, celebration. But now there's what I think is a fourth story. This encounter with the elder son, and there's only one son. And he doesn't realize that he's lost. If you picked up on it, there's no ending to this story. There's no closure in the Scriptures. There's no being found. There's no celebrating. We don't know how the older son responds to the father. And the reason is because I think Jesus wanted the religious of his day the Pharisees who were listening and murmuring and angry, he wanted them to respond. To see themselves as this elder brother. And Jesus wants the religious here this morning. Those of us who murmur our way through life, who do not enter the party, to see ourselves as this one brother. And then prayerfully complete the end of the story. Like the way the other stories ended by being found, and then entering the party. The father tells us this morning, son and daughter, you're always with me. All that I have is yours. The fattened calf has been killed. On the cross, the father gave his very best, his only son, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. On the cross, Jesus descended into darkness to set us free. We are free and loved like a child by our Father. Jesus offers us robes of righteousness. We can relax. And we can know that Christ has accomplished what we cannot. He perfectly obeyed. And He offers us the ring, security into the royal family, sons and daughters for eternity. He offers us shoes, the Holy Spirit who will carry us along to walk into these truths. But we will remain in darkness and on the outside of the party if we do not know day by day we're lost apart from Him finding us. Each day dying to pursuing life by either our self-assertion or our self-righteousness so that in our death we might live. So we confess our lostness. And we're found. And then we party. Don't you realize that Christianity and the gospel of Jesus is about a party? A constant festival of relationship with God, of extravagant grace and love. I want Christ Central to be a church that parties. Not self-righteousness. Not self-assertion. We allow the Father to love us. That you know 
The Father wants nothing more than to embrace you and kiss you over and over and over. That He has killed the fattened calf. Jesus has been slaughtered and the party has begun. So we can relax. We can rest. We can stop judging people, stop comparing ourselves to others. And with joy, we celebrate and we party. Let's pray. God, I I pray that we would know we are lost so that we can be found, so that we party, so we celebrate with you, God, in your grace and in your love that abounds to us. God, I know with in all of us there's the, the younger son and the elder son. Some of us more feel like the younger son this morning. Some of us, I know, feel like the eldest son. Would you love this sense of self-assertion and love the sense of self-righteousness out of us so that we can experience the party, so we can experience the festival of your love and grace that abounds in Christ to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.